Welcome to the Father Neo's White Rabbit Podcast. This is a place where we like to share how to bring Holy Scripture and faith to life. Join me in listening to Father Stace Tafoya as he compares the Magi and Herod in relation to their perception of Christ. The Magi are looking up for the King of the Jews. Herod is looking down for fear of losing his throne. We also find that specific parallels lie between the gifts of the Magi and the elements of Christ and how he relates to us as king. From the Apostle Paul. For what can be known about God is plain to you because God has shown it to you. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So you are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. In the second century, two notable Christian theologians whose writings overlapped were Irenaeus of Lyons and Tertullian of Carthage. I'm sure you've read them both exhaustively. But in case you hadn't, they had two contrasting views on the use of pagan philosophy, such as Plato, Aristotle, the myths of the Greeks and Romans, and the Christian faith. Tertullian thought that the philosophers were at their essence misguided, evil, wrong, and should be dismissed out of hand. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Was his famous quote. Irenaeus, on the other hand, wrote about what he called the seed of the Logos. That is, the seed of the word, the seed of Christ. That in every culture and most philosophies, If one looks close enough, there are inklings of Christ inherent within them. Now, most of you know that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were not only contemporaries, but friends. And they had a little group called Inklings that you've heard of, where the two of them and others like Charles Williams and one Barfield spoke of faith and story over a pint or two. Yet there was another group that Lewis and Tolkien founded that began a few years before called the Coal Biters Group. They read old Norse myths like Thor and discussed them exhaustively. Now the old Norsemen would tell stories so close to the hot fire, so close that they singed their hair, hence the name the Coal Biters just what you wanted to know on your Sunday morning. And when Lewis and Tolkien met for the Coalbiters group, Lewis still considered himself to be an atheist. The group disbanded as they had read all, yes, all of the Norse myths and discussed them exhaustively. But of course, the discussions continued between Tolkien, the Catholic Christian, and Lewis, the Anglican atheist. Now, one evening, the two of them were walking in the famous Addison's Walk on the grounds of Magdalen College. 
which has an idyllic path, a stream, acres of greenery. And they were discussing what they always discussed, myth and story, meaning and philosophy, and, of course, Jesus. Now, it was Tolkien who said that either Jesus was a madman or a liar or what he said was true. And that was an argument Lewis used in Mere Christianity, uh, if you remember. Well, Lewis said all the good myths had stories of gods dying and rising again to teach us a moral lesson. So what if this Jewish tale of a dying and rising rabbi did the same thing? And Tolkien replied, The story of Christ is a myth like all other myths, but with one tremendous difference. It really happened. Now, for whatever reason, this moved Lewis. It made him return to the faith of his childhood, and he became an apologist for the Christian faith, sometimes overtly through prose like mere Christianity, but often subtly through stories. For Lewis and Tolkien, Irenaeus was right. The seed of the Logos, that is Christ, the Word, could be found everywhere if you had eyes to see and ears to hear. This grand story enveloped and envelops all others. The Magi were also those who sought truth and wisdom wherever they could find it. They were in search of the grand story, and hence, they became a part of it. What emerges from our gospel today is really two ways of seeing the world. Or put another way, there is a conflict of worlds in our gospel, a conflict of stories, if you will, between the Magi and Herod. Both the Magi and Herod followed the science. They observed the same data, the heavens and the heavenly star, the ancient scrolls of wisdom and prophecy. The Magi also explored the heavens as a study of itself. Whether they were wise men from Persia or Magi kings from Jordan or Arabia, they had a hunger for truth, and it had drawn them from their homeland find the object of the star's light. I find it fascinating that the Magi and Herod are given the same information, the same data, the same points of reference, yet they see things totally and completely different. The star, the ancient scrolls, the prophecy of the Messiah and his birth in Bethlehem, they are all there for them to see. Yet what a contrast in their responses. Erasmo Leva Mercacus says, Herod knows and in theory accepts what Christ is, but he does not accept it for himself. 
His knowledge of Christ impels him to hatred, not to adoration. His gaze does not go upward to what is written large as the heavens for those who have eyes to read. He can only look downward at his paltry kingdom. The Magi are looking up for the king of the Jews. Herod is looking down for fear of losing his throne. The mighty Herod is afraid of a child. See what he did to the children of Bethlehem later in Matthew 2. Afraid of a child. After the Magi's encounter with Christ and his mother, while they sense Herod's duplicity, they were warned in a dream. And Matthew tells us they left by another road. Now this line has more meaning than it first appears. In a sense, the Magi, as Leva says, leave the merchants of darkness that is, the Herods of the world, to their own deeds and walk away undisturbed. The Holy Family then goes on a journey of their own, which also goes in the opposite direction from Herod. Now, if you look at the opening chapters of Matthew, what you want to see is parallels to the Torah itself. Joseph is the son of Jacob and has dreams. Joseph, back in Genesis, is the son of Jacob, and he has dreams. The magicians in the book of Exodus are opponents of Moses, but here are new magicians, and they are advocates of Christ. Pharaoh kills the Hebrew babies of Egypt. Herod kills the Hebrew babies of Bethlehem. Moses and Jesus are both saved in Egypt. When Jesus begins his ministry, he passes through the river Jordan and is baptized, then goes to the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. The children of Israel pass through the waters of the Red Sea, and are tempted in the wilderness for... Whew. I thought we were going to have to go back and do some Bible lessons. Moses ascends a mountain to receive what? The Torah. Jesus ascends a mountain to give his Torah of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. The other road of the Magi and Christ are the new exodus in the salvific works of Jesus. The road leads to the great story of redemption. Well, today, we are 126 years old. Do you feel that old? This building is 80 years old. It definitely feels that old. <laughs> now, we have endured two world wars, the Spanish flu epidemic, don't forget that, the Great Depression, the turmoil of the 60s, 
September 11th, the endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, a great recession, and here we are, hopefully at the end of a worldwide pandemic. So, how do we fit in the story? How are we disciples of Christ in light of this story that defines us? But also the challenging times that we are in. Which story do we wish to be a part of? I believe our friends the Magi can give us insight via those gifts that we've heard about so many years. Gold for a king, incense for divinity, and myrrh to point to Christ's sacrifice and burial. First, gold for a king. The Magi brought their wares to honor the new king of the Jews. To an ironic place called Bethlehem. Yet this poverty of Christ is the greatest symbol of his glory. Mark Frank says, Thy poverty, O sweet Jesu, shall be my patrimony, thy weakness my strength, thy rags my riches, thy manger my kingdom. Christ's kingship represented by gold forces us to ask, Is Christ king of my life? Robert Barron says, One ironic way to answer that question is to ask, Am I king over myself? Now, not am I the master of my domain, or not am I the king of my own story, or am I the king of the house? I tell people what to do. But am I king over my own passions, my own sins, my own desires? To put it in baptismal terms, have I really renounced the flesh, the world, and the devil. Herod, the king with power, was actually enslaved by himself. Leva writes, Herod was a prisoner in the airless sky of his own mind, where no stars can shine because the skull is too hard, impermeable to light. To be a king in Herod's world, which is where most of us think we need to be king, is to be a prisoner of one's own passions and whims. To be a king in Christ's kingdom is to lay aside those things that hold us back. Second, incense, the symbol of prayer and worship. Christ divinity. I'm fascinated by the term used three times in Matthew 2. And RSV translates it, pay homage. And if you go to oh, the old King Jimmy or the RSV, it says worship. The term used is similar to our word prostrate or bow down. And it comes out of Herod's mouth as well. Let me go also so that I may bow down to him. Was his intent worship? Probably not. Was it for the Magi? Probably so. 
especially when they arrived and found what they found. I believe for American Christians, bowing, kneeling, venerating are foreign concepts. We think it sounds too European or something like that. We have no political king. We have no royal family. What's our usual sign of respect? Do we even know what our usual sign of respect is? It's not this. It's not this. Stand. You're right. Stand. Which is fine. The uh, early Christians, the, the way they prayed was in the Orans. This is the Orans, hands out. Standing. Perfectly fine. But the early Christians also bowed and knelt and did all kinds of different things. Changing our posture is actually a big thing. Changing our posture can actually lead us to a deeper place of worship. We often hesitate to kiss or kneel or bow when we venerate the cross on Good Friday. Uh, sometimes it's difficult for folks to get into that. Because when they think, well, we're worshiping the cross, and the answer is no, you're not worshiping the cross. You're showing respect. Worship is sacrifice. Keep that in your head. We offer bread and wine, that's worship. We offer our lives, that's worship. We offer our treasure, that's worship. Kneeling, bowing, genuflecting is respect. But I think those practices are good for us. The Magi came to adore Christ as his mother was already doing. Now, we use incense, of course, we use incense today, as a symbol of our prayer, as a symbol of the honor of the God that we serve and the God that we worship. Lastly, myrrh, the symbol of Christ's passion. Remember Christ was anointed by Mary of Bethany before his death. Remember Nicodemus used a vast amount of perfume to anoint Christ's dead body. And of course, in the Gospels, the myrrh-bearing women came to anoint him after the Sabbath. Been to uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and it's probably my favorite place in the world. And as you walk into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you see this big stone just kind of laying on the ground. It's got candles around it, there's some icons behind it and all these things. And people just go there and they kiss the stone, and they kneel down, and, and people from all over the world, every walk of life, every age, babies, children, uh, saw some Ethiopians and all their, you know, their white gear, and they're dancing, they're doing, this, doing the thing, they come to the stone, they kiss the stone. Mother Teresa's uh, Sisters of Charity are there often in, their, in that familiar habit, kissing the stone. This is the stone that represents the place that Christ was laid. Always a reminder of his passion. And the stone exudes myrrh, perhaps even from another shore. The myrrh is melancholy, but it is a gift that points to Christ's passion. 
and hence the salvation of the world. In a sense, it is an evangelical gift. For us, a disciple is one whose very life exudes myrrh. When we are living our faith, when we are speaking of the gospel in a respectful and loving way, we should exude myrrh. Now, there are other ways to talk about the gospel when you exude something else, especially if you're online doing things. That might exude some different kind of sense. But having a loving heart, telling people about Christ, reminding them of his passion, this is a way to exude myrrh. A disciple shows Christ to the world. Leva Markaka says that the Magi found the Virgin Mary hidden under an anonymous roof and holding forth her divine child to the world. That is, to anyone who would search, find, and adore. She holds him out for us to grasp. To search, to find, and to adore. This is our evangelical moment. To see those who are searching and finding and longing to adore and showing them Christ for the world to see. And we tell this story hopefully because we are also a part of it. We have been saved by grace. We have been saved by mercy. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. May God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us a new birth by water and the Holy Spirit, and bestowed upon us the forgiveness of sins, keep us in eternal life by his grace. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.